good to see everyone here tonight. Uh, tonight, we are going to be thinking about identity and our work. Identity and our work. All of us are engaged in some kind of work. If it's a, a job or a career, that means 40 or 50 or 60, maybe more hours a week we spend in our workplaces. Even if it's not that, we all have some sort of work that we do. You might be a student, uh, you might be a stay-at-home parent, you might be building a house, you might uh, be just tending the garden or raking the leaves, right? All of us are called to do work. And so since so much of our life is bound up in our work, it's so important that we think through it in terms of our identity in Christ. So what I want to do to start tonight is think about our work in relation to the, the big story of our world that starts in creation and ends with a new heavens and a new earth. And where we fit into that story will have so many implications for how we pursue and how we do our work. So as we saw this morning, Pastor Jason's sermon, in creation is the opening act of this story. And in this opening act, what we find is that work does not start with us, but work actually starts with God himself. God is working in Genesis 1. He's a master artist, and he's creating this complex and beautiful world that is supposed to reflect his goodness and his beauty. And in this creation, his magnum opus is not the mountains or the sea or the sun or the moon or stars, but it's actually us, his image bearers. And he created us in his image to spread that image to all parts of the creation. And we are to do that through our work, that as we reflect God, who himself is a worker, that we too will then work in this world. So this is scene one, act one. We then move into scene two, act two, because we know that this is not how our world is. Our world does not reflect the goodness and the beauty of God. And that's, of course, because of the fall, the fall into sin. And now what we see is our work is no longer this restful and joyful and life-giving display of God's image, but fallen work is now painful, it's full of tears, it's frustrating, and it's overwhelmed by death. This is scene two, act two, fallen work. Now the good news is God doesn't just leave us in that state, in that misery, but Jesus comes as a second Adam, and he comes and succeeds where Adam has failed. Not only did Jesus obey the Father completely, but in his obedience, he actually crushes the head of that serpent, that great dragon, and in that defeating of the devil, the effects of the curse are now being undone. So this is scene three, or act three, and here we see that redeemed work can now be spirit-empowered, it can be life-giving, image-restoring, and ultimately hopeful. And why is it hopeful? It's hopeful because of act four, the, the final part in this story, and that is the new heavens and the new earth, where God is going to recreate the world as this garden city. And where all of the effects of, this, of sin are now going to be removed in his presence. And that is what we are working toward, working for, seen for in this story. 
So an important question for us to ask is, where are we in this story? If we are apart from Christ, then we are stuck in Acts 2, where work is not restful, it's not joyful, but it's painful, it's frustrating, it's overwhelmed by death. Our identity, if we are in this part of the story, is going to play itself out in all those ways. But if we are in Act 3, if we are joined to Christ, if we believe in Him, work now becomes very different because we are now in a new state. We're in this state of redemption. And in this state, work takes on whole new meaning and whole new application for us. And so that's what I want to think about for the rest of our time together is how does our work look in this third scene, this third act, where God is redeeming not just us, but he's redeeming all the things that are in our lives. So I want you to turn to the book of Ephesians, and we're going to look at six ways that our identity in Christ should shape the way we view our work. So turn to the book of Ephesians. We're going to first look in chapter 2, verse 10, a familiar verse probably for most of us. Here's what we read. Paul says this. He says, for we are his workmanship, that is those who have been made alive by Christ, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's the first way that our work is shaped by our identity, and that is that God has called all of us to good works in all areas of our life. Another way to say it is God has given all of us good things to accomplish in this life. It's not just for pastors or ministry leaders, but for all of us. He's calling us to this. Now, you might be thinking, it's a question I've wrestled with, is, is it okay to say that the Lord has called me to be, and then fill in the blank, has the Lord called me to be a barista? Has the Lord called me to be a CPA or uh, an IT technician? can Can we say that God has actually called us to those things? I think what we see here in this text is that that is an appropriate way to to think and, and to say it. Why do I say that? Well, look at what it says. It says that God has created us in Christ Jesus for good works, and then it says that he did this beforehand. These good works have been prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Earlier in Ephesians 1, there's the language of before the foundation of the world. In other words, God in his sovereign plan, in his providence, has has assigned for us a specific thing to do in this world. God has called us to do that. He's prepared these things even before we even thought about them. And that God is at work in it. He's ordained it. There's There's a very interesting paragraph in Kelvin's Institutes where he he touches on this. Uh, I found it very interesting and helpful as I read through it this week. 
It's in book three, which is where he's talking about how we receive Christ and the way that that benefits us or affects our lives. And he's talking about our present life and how we should view our present life. And there's this section that's called The Lord's Calling as a Basis for Our Way of Life. So listen to what Calvin says. This is a little bit of an extended quote, but there's some really good things for us to think about here. And here's what Calvin says. He says, The Lord bids each one of us in all life's actions to look to his calling. So he's, he's telling all Christians to say, hey, look, look to the calling that God has given to you. And then here's what he says. Here's, here, here's what he says for why we should do that, why we should look to our calling. He says, for he knows with what great restlessness human nature flames, with what fickleness it is born hither and thither. That's a, a good phrase. Hither and thither, this way and that way, to and fro. How its ambitions long to embrace various things at once. Have you ever found yourself in that place where you have all these things you want to do and, and, and when you're doing one thing, you want to do another thing, right? Calvin's addressing that. And then he says this, therefore, lest through our stupidity and rashness, everything be turned topsy-turvy, in other words, we just follow all those ambitions and desires, Calvin says he has appointed duties for every man in his particular way of life. And that no one may thoughtlessly transgress his limits, he named these various kinds of livings callings. And he says, therefore, each individual has his own kind of living assigned to him by the Lord as a sort of sentry post, a a guard tower, a watchtower, a sentry post, so that he may not heedlessly wander about through life. So Calvin's saying that the Lord has given to each one of us these particular callings, the the things that we are to do in life. It's like our own sentry post where we are to man that watchtower and to stand guard and to be faithful in that place. And then this line, at the very end, he says this. This is so helpful. He says, no task will be so sordid and base provided you obey your calling in it that will not shine and be reckoned very precious in God's sight. So here's what Calvin is saying. is He's saying that all of us have this particular calling in life, that the things that we're supposed to do, the Lord has given this to us. It's our sentry post, and we need to be faithful in it, no matter if it's sweeping the floors or shoveling snow or running an investment company or being a governor of the state. Right? All of us are called to be faithful And none of these tasks, from the smallest to the greatest, will not be beyond God's sight. God will shine in those things, and he will reckon it very precious. So what freedom, what purpose that can give to us in our work is to see that the Lord has given this. He's assigned this to me to live in it, to walk in it, to do good works. So a question we should ask ourselves is this, are we seeking to walk in the good works God has prepared for us, whatever area that he has called us to do that in? And you might be wondering to yourself, well, how do I know what it is that God is asking me to do? What are those good works? I think we could, we could give lots of answers to that, but let me just give you four words to, to stick in our heads to try to 
look for to walk in these good works. So four words, excellence, opportunity, truth, and service. Excellence, what things are you called to do that you can do with excellence? How can you pursue excellence in the things that the Lord has called you to do? Opportunity, what opportunities for good can you pursue in the place you are? What opportunities? So instead of viewing your work, your calling just passively, I do what I'm told, I, I clock, I put in my time, I, I punch in, I punch out. Rather, what opportunities for good can I pursue? Truth. What truth can I stand for? What, what truth can I contend for? What truth can I proclaim in this calling that the Lord has given to me? And service. How can I serve others through this calling that the Lord has given to me? God has called all of us to good works, and he has planned these good works that we would walk in them. Here's the second thing, that our redeemed work is to be marked by honesty, diligent effort, and others, and being others-focused. So flip a few uh, verses, chapters forward, St. Ephesians. We're going to look at Ephesians 4, verse 28. Ephesians 4, 28. This verse is in a section. You can, you'll notice the title is called The New Life. And Paul here is talking about putting off the old self. That self has died. That's the fallen man. And now we are to put on our new self, verse 24, and we do it by renewing the spirit of our minds, verse 23. And then he gives all these different sort of applications for what does it look like to renew your mind and to live your identity as a Christian. Verse 28, he addresses the thieves or a thief. I think here Paul probably has a perhaps a particular person or maybe a, a group of people in mind as he's writing this. Let's read this together, Ephesians 4.28. Paul says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul here is addressing the thief, and he's saying to the thief that, look, you have a new nature, and this new nature no longer should act as the old man did, but there's a new way to act, a new way to live. So think for a moment, a profile of a thief. What is a thief? Well, it probably starts with a desire, a desire for something, that I want something and I don't have it. I look over there and there it is. It's not mine, but that's something I want. And so there's really two options that we, we can... We can go, go from here. We can either work hard, earn money, buy that thing and enjoy it, or we can just take it. All right, and, that, and that's what a thief does. A thief says, that thing I want and you have, I, I'm just going to take it because I want it that badly. So what does this reveal about a thief? It reveals selfishness and greed, right, a, a disregard and a disdain for others. I don't care that it's yours. I don't care what you put in to get it. I simply want it for myself. It, it reveals a, a laziness because it's easier to just steal than to labor and get what you want. Now, we, it's easy for us to, to think about thieves and say, well, you know, those are the old bank robbers, um, maybe identity thieves that we hear about all the time today. 
But it actually goes much, much deeper than that. You think about this as really a, a commentary on the Eighth Commandment, do not steal. The larger catechism tells us the Eighth Commandment that gives us all these different ways that we either need to follow the Eighth Commandment or the ways we violate the Eighth Commandment. And one of those, it says, is that it, this commandment, do not steal, requires that we render to everything their due or to everyone their due. In other words, give to people what they deserve. And every time we don't do that, we are breaking this commandment. We're being thieves. So, have you ever dishonored someone? Have you ever not shown someone the honor they deserve? If we've done that, then we're a thief. You think, how many times have we dishonored someone in authority? Maybe a president, perhaps. It's really a form of stealing. It's not giving to them their due. Another way this commandment comes to bear on us is that, this is what the larger catechism says, is that it requires a lawful calling, that means some kind of a job or vocation, and diligence in it. So a lawful calling and diligence in it. So ask yourself this question, have you ever slacked off while on the job? Have you ever turned in more hours than you've actually worked? Have you ever lied to a boss or employer that you've done a certain job and you actually haven't? All of these are examples of breaking the Eighth Commandment, and there's many more. I think what that shows us is that all of us in some way can identify with this verse. All of us have been thieves at some point. And Paul is here telling us that the gospel has set us free from the old ways of our sinful nature, and it's changed our approach to work. It's changed our work ethic The gospel is now giving us a desire to do hard and honest work, that we're not expecting or demanding someone else to do the work for me, but we're to do it with our own hands. So immediately I think of students. Students, homework, when you're assigned homework, that's for you to do, right? You're not to steal that from your classmates. You're not to expect your classmates to do your homework for you. That's yours to do. It's for your benefit. Or salary earners, if you're working in some kind of a full-time job with a salary, how much of our day do we spend not doing the work that's been assigned to us? This is the way that this verse is speaking to us, that our work needs to be honest and it needs to be diligent. But it doesn't stop there because Paul then says, that all of this is not simply for ourselves, it's not to terminate upon us, but he says so that, so we work hard, we work diligently, so that we would have something to share with anyone in need. So this fundamental selfish nature of the thief is now being transformed into a selfless and servant-minded worker. This is a gospel work ethic that is radically others-focused. So we could tease this out in so many ways, uh, thinking through just principles of economics and all all different kinds of ways. Um, But the main point here to see is that these, the resources that we get through our hard work are not to terminate simply upon ourselves. But God has given these things to us through our hard work so that we can be a blessing to others. So here's a question we could ask ourselves. In what ways can I be 
more honest, and more diligent in my work. So not assuming that all of us are dishonest or not diligent, but I'm sure we can all grow in honesty and diligence and hard work. But not just that, as we gain fruits from our labor, a second question is this, how can I use the fruit of my work to share with others? And it's so easy here to just think of money, that that's certainly a, a, a big part of this, our finances and our money, but it's so much more than that. What, what kind of knowledge do you have that you can share with others? What skills, what experience and expertise, what resources have you gained through your hard work, through our hard work, what things can we share to help others? So it's great if you are really good in your uh, calculus class and, and you understand your work, and it's a great thing to share that knowledge with your classmates. Just don't let them steal your homework, right? All right, so we're going to look at the last text in Ephesians, so flip over to chapter 6, and this will be a, a few verses here together, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Now, before we read this, what I want you to think about for a moment is your job. What is your job? What is your calling? What is your sphere of work? So again, that might be a full-time employment thing, or it might be something that you do to serve others, maybe you're teaching, maybe you're... Um, working, just helping out around the house, whatever it might be. What's your, what's your job? What's your calling? And I want you to think about your boss, whoever your boss is. You don't have to say it out loud, but I want you to have that person, or maybe it's a group of people, or whatever it might be. Who is your boss? Who, who's in authority over you in that particular area? I want you to have that person in your minds as we read this next text. So Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. Here's what Paul writes. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So here's the, the third way that our work, our identity rather, shapes our work, and that's this. That in all of our work, no matter what it is that we're doing, we are serving and following the orders of our true master, who is Christ. So we are serving and we are following our true master, who is Christ. So whatever person or people you had in your mind, that's a good thing. You need to know who your bosses are, who your employers are. But you have a greater master, a greater master. And that person is Jesus himself. So th think of this. How would your daily rhythm of work, whatever it would be, student, lab researcher, nurse, barista at a coffee shop, maintenance repairer, uh, stay-at-home mom or dad, whatever it is, how would that rhythm of work be different if 
as you are heading to the job or waking up and getting ready for your day, if you remind yourself that today I am serving Jesus as my boss, how different would our attitude be toward our work? That this is one of the truly remarkable and countercultural things about a Christian view of work, and it's this question, what do you do when no one is watching? All right, what do you do when no one is watching? All right, in most places, you'll see that the main way of answering that question is you work hard when the boss is around, but when the boss is gone, that's when we play. Right? That's, that's what we all think. We've probably all done that and experienced that. But this question, what do we do when no one is watching? This is a reminder for us that there's always someone watching. Jesus is our boss. Jesus is our master. He's our employer, and he's always watching. This is one of the things. Uh, my first job out of college, I, I went to work for an engineering company that was based in Arizona. And I remember wrestling with what I should do after, after college. And I thought about going into full-time ministry, um, thought about working. I wasn't sure which one to do. And I'd interviewed with several places, and eh, they were kind of okay, but I didn't really feel excited about them. But I interviewed for this one particular company, and immediately I could tell that this company was different than all the rest. Uh, the company culture in this place was palpable. It was one of hard work, excellent work. All the people I talked to, anytime I visited one of the offices and, and talked with them, I could just see it in all the employees. They loved being there. They loved the work they did. Uh, when the boss wasn't around, they worked hard still. Uh, it, was, it was really an amazing place. Um, I think it's one of the reasons that, that the company has great success. It's been in the top 100 uh, companies and Fortune's uh, 100 best companies to work for several times over the years. Um, and I found it so amazing that this company culture was this way. And it actually pursued me to, to work there. So I worked for a couple of years for this company. Uh, found it to be a, a great experience. This, uh, the, the, the amazing thing was, I don't think this company, uh, I don't think the, the, the leaders of this company were Christians per se. There, there were Christians who were there. I, I think early on, the, the person who started the business was probably a Christian, and his sort of view of work trickled down. But one of the things I found after, after leaving that place was, if, if this is true of this place, that these people work hard even when the boss is not around, Right, for whatever reason, economic motivation, um, just for whatever reason it was. But if, if it's true here, how much more should it be true of us as believers? Right? How, how, how much more should it be true wherever we are in whatever kind of work we have to do as believers? And you might be thinking, well, if, if God sees everything, well, that seems sort of oppressive. That seems sort of daunting. Right? But it's really the difference between knowing God as a severe judge and knowing him as a loving father. In the gospel, our work is transformed from the frustration and being overwhelmed by death to this life-giving, image-restoring, hopeful activity. And that's because God has blessed us in this way. He's given, us, he's given it to us for this purpose. And so we can trust in God as a heavenly father, not as a severe judge who's watching us and who sees all that we do. So remember that in our work, we are serving and following the orders of our true master, who is Christ. All right, here's the fourth thing. 
Fourth thing is this, our workplace is a realm where we enact our sanctification. Our workplace is a realm, it's not the only realm, but it's a, it's a significant one. It's a realm where we are enacting our sanctification. So what is it that we're doing in our routine of work? Well, Paul tells us, verse 6, he says that we are doing the will of God from the heart. That's what we're to do. That's what we're to do in our work is do the will of God from the heart. We know from other places in the New Testament that the will of God for us is our sanctification. We can boil it down to that. So we can think of this when Paul's instructing us of how to do our work and why we're doing our work and the way in which we're doing our work, we can think of it as if we are enacting our sanctification in one of the biggest areas probably of our lives. So you think about the, the modern world with labor laws that went into effect who knows how long ago, but our modern world, a work week is supposed to be about 40 hours a week, right, if you're working full time, if you're doing that for a living. Now I'm guessing probably most who have a job like that are probably working 50, 60, maybe 70 hours a week. All right, you think outside the American context, it's probably more 80, 90, even more. Some places, it's all you do when you are awake. All right, so that tells us that a big part of our lives are spent in our work. And sanctification is not something that's just reserved for Sunday morning or Sunday evening. But sanctification is one of the things we're doing constantly in all areas of our life, especially in our work. So whatever we're doing, right, we're doing it as for the Lord and not for men. That God is working out our salvation in that particular calling, in that particular place. So in other words, we're not just seeking to follow orders. We're not just seeking to do what the boss says. But we're seeking to grow in holiness before the Lord. So how do we do that? We, we do that through our attitude for sure, our obedience most definitely, our diligence in how we work, pursuing excellence, all of those things. But we see another thing here in this text, verse 7. Paul says we're to do it by rendering service, rendering service with a good will. So in other words, our work is always to be others-centered, others-focused, that we're following the way of the master himself. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And that's the guiding principle for our work as well. So how different would our daily experience be if we reminded ourselves of this question, how can I serve others today? How can I serve others today? So students, again, I'll bring up students again. It's a, a big way that we are working in this world. Students, your classes are not just for yourself. Right? It's not just your knowledge. It's not just your grades that are at stake. You are in those classes to help and to serve others, which is one of the reasons why you should go to class, right? Don't skip out on class because that's where you'll find people to serve so ask yourself this question before you go to a, to a class. Who could I help? Who could I serve in my class today? I'm sure we've all had the experience. We're in a grocery store, and we 
need something, we can't find something, and we try to find a worker, and they're grumpy, they're cranky, they're not helpful, and we immediately think, your job is to serve customers, why are you so grumpy? Right, we've all probably had that experience, but really the question should be for all of us, why are we so grumpy in the things that we do? Right? Turn the question to ourselves. As bond servants of Christ, we are the ones who should be serving in all kinds of ways in our jobs and careers and callings, whether it's at home with the kids or in board meetings with investors, whatever it might be. All the commands of the Christian life should come to bear in our work because the Spirit is moving and working not just in us but through us for the sake of others. And so, sanctification is an important part of our work. It's also the place, or it's also a way that we are to act as salt and light in whatever places of work we are, that we're living out our Christian faith for others to see. It's it's the way in which we are making the king known in all parts of society, And so as we're working with diligence and with honesty and with others in mind, people should ask us, why do you work so differently from everyone else? Why do you go above and beyond to serve others in this workplace? Why are you not seeking promotions and raises at the expense of others? Why don't you criticize the boss or this company like the rest of us do? Why do you show such patience and kindness to everyone? And hopefully, in the right time and in the right way, we're able to offer an answer. Because I work for a greater boss. I have a better company than this. I'm working for Jesus and his kingdom. And I'd love to tell you more about this Jesus. All right, number five. Almost done. Number five. Fifth way, our our identity in Christ shapes the way we work. And this is for leaders, for employers. So those of you who are in positions where you are the authority over others, remember that you too are under the authority of Christ. That's what we see Paul doing in verse 9. He turns his attention not to the bondservants, not to those who are serving and working, but to the master's. And there's this remarkable little phrase in verse 9. It's almost, it's so small, we we tend to just read right over it. But notice what it says. It says, masters, and then this little phrase, do the same to them. That's That's an incredible little thing to say. Masters, treat your employees with the same sincerity of heart, with the same desire to serve them as they are to show to you. That's an amazing thing to say, especially in a world where masters had the power, the authority, the wealth, the status, the recognition. All right, masters, you do, to, you do the same to them. So your employees, treat them the same way that they are supposed to treat you. Why? Because you have a master as well, and he's in heaven. So don't run your business, don't treat your employees, your lab workers, other graduate students, Don't treat them as if you are their ultimate authority, because it's not. Don't treat them as if you can just order them or threaten them or manipulate them to obey you in all things, because they're not going to, and because you too have a master in heaven 
you are not their ultimate authority. In effect, Paul's saying here, watch out, be warned. God is not going to give you a pass because you have more work experience or more degrees or because you're the top in your field or you have the highest position in your company. God does not show partiality. He's not going to cut you moral slack just because you're in a position of power. So can you imagine how different our experiences of work would be in the workplace if this verse was recognized by employers. I've heard horror stories about this on occasion, Uh, especially it it often happens with international students on campus. I've had grad students tell me that their PhD advisors will sometimes put cameras in their lab so they can monitor who's there, who's coming, who's going, when they come, when they go, right? One student a few years ago said that his whole entire lab would sleep in the lab for days and days and days because they were all too afraid if they left, they're going to lose their funding, their funding's going to get cut. This is not the way a Christian should act in the workplace. There's so many implications we could draw out just from this one phrase, do the same to them, and then the next, stop your threatening. All right, so Christian employers, just briefly speak to you for a minute on this. Guilt, coercion, fear, these are not the way to motivate and encourage hard work. Also, take an interest in your employees' personal lives. They're not there just for productivity and efficiency. Right? You're to treat them in such a way that you care for them. And you're not above your employees in the eyes of God. So don't make your work all about your own name or your own reputation or the company's reputation. So any attitude that's demeaning or arrogant have no place in the lives of Christian employers. So Christian leaders, remember that you too are under the authority of Christ. All right, last way, number six, the last way our identity in Christ should shape the way we view our work is this, that we have a new hope and a new power for our work. We have a new hope and a new power for our work. First, a new hope. We'll do these briefly. A gospel work ethic is filled with hope that our labor on this earth is not in vain. It's not in vain. It's not pointless. It's not worthless. That there is a fourth act that's coming, and that's the new heavens and the new earth. And because of that, our work matters in this life. Right, in 1 Corinthians 15, this is where that phrase comes from, that our work is not in vain. The, the logic there in that chapter is it's all about the resurrection and that in the gospel, because Christ has risen from the grave, not just spiritually but physically with a glorious body, and Paul spends 57 verses talking about this resurrection, he can end by saying, therefore, so in other words, because of this truth, because of this resurrection, always abound in the work of the Lord because it's not in vain. In other words, get busy, work hard. The new heavens and the new earth, they're coming. And there's a great hope for us that the things we're doing in this life will not just simply disappear. There is a new hope. We also see that there is a new power that's at work within us. This is not just something we're doing with our own strength, but rather we have a new power that is at work within us. 
God is the one who is in us, working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure, Philippians 2. So we're not just doing this with our own strength, but we're trusting and we're relying upon God who is himself in us and working through us. There's a several places to meditate upon this uh, throughout the scriptures. One place is Psalm 90. Psalm 90. There the psalmist is Moses, and he's writing this psalm, and in it he reflects on God's sovereignty, his power, his holiness, and how he's so distinct from his creation. And then he sees man as nothing, as short lives, just fleeting lives that are here today and, and gone tomorrow. It'd be so easy for us to see those two things and then just simply despair, right? It's hopeless, it's pointless, it's frustrating, it's all going to die anyway. That's not what Moses does. Moses turns to God in faith and in hope. And what he does is he, at at the end of the psalm, well, actually before that, he, he writes this, a verse we all are familiar with. He says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In other words, it's not all hopeless. It's not all in vain. And then he says this at the very end. It's a prayer, really. It's a good prayer. He says this. It says, let the favor of the Lord God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. In other words, God is powerful and and our lives are fleeting and in sin, but because of what God has done for us, our work is not in vain and our work matters. So we can work hard, but as we're working hard, it's not our work, it's God's work through us. And so we trust in him, we depend upon him, we look to him in his power to work in us and through us. So what a great thing for us to pray in all of our spheres of work, all right, from the least to the greatest, however we might think of those things, to pray that all, in all these things, all these little sentry posts where the Lord has put us, that he would bless us and that he would use us to accomplish his will in the world. And so after a long, hard days of, day of work, where we're being diligent, we're being honest, we're being others-focused, we're seeking to serve others and serve the Lord, that we could rest well with this prayer on our lips. Establish the work of our hands. O Lord, establish the work of our hands. Not for our sakes, but that your, may, your way may be known upon all the earth. So I hope as we went through this sort of brief overview of work and how it shapes our lives, hope that you would be encouraged in your work. I hope that you'd also be challenged in your work to grow, to work hard, to labor hard, for the Lord, knowing that it is not in vain. Let's finish by praying and asking the Lord to bless his word. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in that second act where everything is under the curse of sin and death is all around us, but you've redeemed us and you've called us to work hard for you with a greater hope and a greater power that's at work within us. So, Lord, we would pray that that would be true of all of us in whatever areas of our life that we are working. I think especially of those who don't have work right now or are looking for work or 
not satisfied in their work. Help us to work hard and be diligent, to be faithful. Lord, help us all to be salt and light in whatever places of work you have us. We pray that your way would be known on the earth, and Lord, that your people would find their joy and their hope in you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.